0: Sophia's second letter. Dear Yarostan, your letter was cruel. You are obviously aware of that. It doesn't call for an answer. It's the last word. Victims don't share their experiences with their executioners. That's clear. Why should they? Since you define defined me that way, I'm surprised your letter was so long. Why didn't you communicate exactly the same message by not answering me at all? Why did you feel you owed an explanation to that type of person? You can't possibly imagine what a sad experience your second letter was for me. If you can, then you're even crueler than your letter. For countless years, I dreamed of finding what I'd experienced since I was with you, of comparing it with what you'd experienced. If I fail to see you again, I hope I'd at least reach you with one after another letter, each crossing at least one of yours, each as long and full of detail as your last letter. That dream was starting to come true. At least one of the longings of my life was being fulfilled. But I never dreamed I'd get a letter from you with that content, a letter which so cruelly ended the correspondence when it had barely begun. I can't say I never dreamed of such a content. I did, in fact, dream of it, in a nightmare. It was my greatest fear. It did pass through my mind that the long separation and the different experiences would create a wall between us, that we would no longer have anything to say to each other, that we would be merely polite, cold, and strange to each other. But not even in a nightmare did I dream that you'd ever see me as your enemy. The same letter wouldn't have been so cruel if you had sent it from jail. I would have understood your anger, your desire to destroy my frame of reference. I would have understood it as resentment against someone who is not in jail. But you didn't write from jail. You wrote from a situation that's far happier than mine. You described a world which is again in ferment, a social context which is alive with hopes and possibilities. You described exactly the experience I longed to learn about and share, the experience that would heal the open wound I've carried in my being since I was torn from you. And you excluded me from that experience. Yours wasn't a letter from one in jail, but from one becoming free, and it was sent to one who is still in jail. Instead of sharing the joy, the promise of new life, you spat on me, pushed me aside, discarded me. Why? I recognize the pain and suffering you've undergone. I say recognize because in your description, I saw my own pain and suffering. The forms were different, though sometimes not so different. The pain was communicated by your letter because I had felt it too. I also recognized the bitterness. A bitterness I had felt toward those who inflicted pain, never towards others who suffered from it. The cold, calculated cruelty is what I can't understand. A cruelty aimed at a fellow human being. Asking for help in this bizarre world, as you said with such a different spirit in your first letter. Do you actually think the suffering excuses and justifies that cruelty, that inhumanity towards me? Inhumanity. I can't find a better word. A complete lack of human warmth, understanding, sympathy, comradeship. A cold, dispassionate dissection of an animal. Under the guise of unmasking what you call my illusions? You tear apart my past experiences, my commitments, my few accomplishments, and all my dreams. Wouldn't silence be the most appropriate response to your letter? That might be what you expect. You would have severed me from your life for good, and my silence would confirm the truth of your analysis. But I won't keep silent. I won't let our correspondence end where you ended it. Because you're wrong. You're wrong about me and about the friendships and experiences I shared with you. About yourself. Your cruelty is blind and unjust. I won't be silent until I show you how wrong you are. And if you throw my letter into the garbage unread, you won't have confirmed the truth of your analysis, but its complete falsity and its cruelty. Unfortunately, I can't refute you point by point. I can't expose every false detail and erroneous judgment in your letter, because I can't get myself to read your letter yet another time. I've already drenched it with tears twice tears of shame and humiliation. This wasn't the only time I was excluded from the world by my comrades. It was probably not the last. But this exclusion pushes me out of the one world I thought was mine. You're the single friend who I thought would never push me away. You can't simply turn my own experience upside down and tell me I remembered it wrong. You're the one who's wrong. If I cared a sign that said, the factories to the workers, I didn't mean I support my new boss. If this is what you meant, then you are a hypocrite, and your letter is a confession of your own hypocrisy. But you know perfectly well that neither you nor any of our friends anticipated the establishment of the new bosses, the reinforcement of prisons, or the enlargement of the political police. How can you be so absurd? How can your imagination even formulate the bizarre vision of thousands of people joyfully and enthusiastically anticipating their own incarceration? I think it's not Louisa or I who have lost touch with reality, but you. I think your mind is fogged by a terrible confusion. Your first letter already contained hints of it when you treated inmates and guards as interchangeable. You seem to have lost your ability to distinguish victory from defeat, executioner from victim. Our activity was followed by our imprisonment. Your confusion begins when you modify the sentence ever so slightly and say, Our activity led to our imprisonment. Having put it this way, you conclude that our activity was the cause of our imprisonment and that we were our own judges and guards and the builders of our own prisons. If our struggle was followed by the reinstatement of factory bosses and prison guards, then this means our struggle came to nothing. We were defeated. Our intentions were thwarted. In no way does it mean that the bosses and guards are the fruit of our victory and the realization of our intentions. The bosses and guards are what we fought against, and they won. Not because of us, but in spite of us to cement their victory they had to jail us this is so obvious the world you walked into when you were released from prison wasn't the world i fought for no matter how often you say i helped build it does it show a single trace of my commitment yours louisa's where are the destroyed prisons where's the rubble of former government buildings where are the human beings engaged in projects chosen by themselves without supervisors or guards the world you describe hasn't a trace of the world i fought for What you describe is the very world I fought to destroy. Don't you recognize it? You should. Your descriptions of it were vivid enough. It's the world of wage, labor, and capital. The world of inmates and jailers. It's the world you and I were born into. We couldn't possibly have helped build this world. It was built before we were born. If you claim this world was the outcome of our struggle, you have to admit it's been the outcome of every struggle. So far, there's been no other outcome in history. It's the outcome of the struggles in which those who fought against it lost. They were defeated, as we were. You built your whole argument by omitting this small detail, the defeat. It's this omission that enables you to say that the world of bosses and jailers was rebuilt, not by those who fought to reinstate it and won, but by those who fought to destroy it and lost. If this is what you learned in prison, then prison is not the great school Tolstoy said it was, or else you learned your lessons very badly. Can you really be saying that insurgents only rise against the ruling order so as to reimpose it? Can you really be saying that the only dreams of rebels are dreams of authority and submission? You even accuse me of having helped deform dreams and destroy possibilities. What dreams were deformed? Suppressed? Destroyed? Clearly not the dreams of reimposing authority, but the dreams of destroying it. You admit that insurgents fought to destroy the world of jailers. Yet you say they reimpose that very world. How? By fighting against it? By fighting to realize their dream of a world without jailers? Is this paradox the ultimate wisdom of a prison education? I don't really understand your letter. Parts of it are so full of resentment, all of it aimed against Louisa and me. Other parts are so full of compassion, especially your descriptions of Myrna. You said Jan moved out of the house when you and Myrna were married. He felt like an outsider to your happiness. If you began to treat him the way that your letter treats me, I can understand perfectly why he left. You drove him out, just as you're driving me out of your life. I'm sure he didn't feel jealous or resentful, just confused and stunned. Until the day before yesterday, he'd been your best friend. Suddenly, he was a stranger. You wrote the first letter to one who had once been a friend, a comrade, and more. Someone you had loved. Why shouldn't I remind you? You've obviously forgotten. In your first letter, you said you hardly remembered me. Well, I haven't forgotten. I can understand how I might become a stranger to you over so many years. I can even understand that we might have become enemies. What I can't understand is how you can treat me as if I had been your enemy then, precisely during the moment when we loved each other. And we did love each other, passionately. You can't discard that. It's already inscribed in time. You can't take that love from me, no matter how often you accuse me, exclude me, or insult me because the person I loved is not the person who wrote those accusations. The person I loved was present in your letter, not in your statements about me, but in your descriptions of Myrna. I recognize your love for me and your love for Myrna. I recognize the evening walks, the conversations, even the expectation that working people would soon join us, embrace us, and dance with us in the street. If you tried to present yourself to me as a completely different person from the one I knew, you failed. You made me want to be Myrna not in spite of your bitterness towards me, but because of it. The Sophia in your letter is a treacherous wretch who caused you only pain and suffering, whereas Myrna is a wonderful, unspoiled creature who brings you happiness. Could any conceivable reader of your letter want to be Sophia? I don't. I want to be the one who shares the embrace as well as the happiness. I want to be on the street with you when the dancing begins, even to the point of consenting to marriage oh but you've disposed of that question altogether yes under the circumstances if i'm a shepherdess a village girl yes to share the happiness i don't want to be an outsider to that happiness i don't want to be excluded why can't you share it with me i don't begrudge your moments of happiness with myrna on the contrary i found joy in your descriptions of them because i found myself how could i help it i was exactly the same age when i knew you as myrna was when you met her you were younger for me but for me you haven't aged, and the joy you described was recognizable to me because I too had experienced it once, though only once in my life, with you. Pain and suffering predominated in your life. Does that justify the pain your letter inflicts on me? Pain predominated in my life too. It was undoubtedly less intense than yours, but my moments of happiness were also less intense and fewer than the ones you've described. My relationship to you, my participation in the project we shared with others, account for the happiest moments of my life. Why do you want to take that away from me now? Don't you see that your argument puts the guilt on Louisa and me because you spent 12 years of your life in prison and we didn't? Can't you see the absurdity of accusing slaves of enslaving themselves through the very act of trying to free themselves? Can't you remember that my project was to destroy the world that caused your suffering, not to reimpose it? Can't you recognize my project in the agitation taking place around you while you wrote me? The people tearing down the signs, the tapestries, where did they come from? Did they drop from the sky? You admit they didn't. You admit they're the same individuals who were nothing but moving corpses only yesterday. Today, empty shells are suddenly becoming full of life, imagination, and potentiality. Dreams are once again becoming realizable. Where did that life and those dreams come from? You don't say. But I know those dreams didn't suddenly drop from the sky any more than the people did. They're dreams that have been suppressed, dreams that were held inside until the day when they could again be expressed. They're my dreams, and Louisa's, and yours. What you're describing is the rebirth of our struggle, our project, our hopes. Why are you so intent on excluding us, all of us? Vera, Mark, Yasna, Titus, Adrian, and Claude, were we so criminal for having tried and failed where no one else has yet succeeded? The walls that are crumbling around you today were the prisons that suppressed our struggle. Why are you trying to prove that we ourselves imprisoned our own hopes, that we were the tombs of our dreams? I don't understand. Without that struggle, without that project we're nothing. Your letter abounds in imagery that shows how well you understand this. Without those dreams were corpses, shells, husks, instruments, machines. If you raise the rest of us to the ground, you may find yourself standing very high, Yarostan, but not in a human community. You shatter my dreams, revise my past, and then tell me I've deformed both. You're the one who deforms. I shouldn't have told you I had a poor memory. Maybe you thought I'd let your revision stand unchallenged, or even that I'd believe you, but you're telling me about my own past, and Louise's fantasy, as you choose to call it, happens to coincide with a large part of my own life, so that I have some familiarity with that as well. You made a cryptic reference to a certain Manuel that you met in prison he helped you see everything clearly he provided the missing facts he completed a picture that until then was incomplete and the complete picture shows louisa and her comrades stabbing each other in the back i don't know where manuel's facts come from but i know that mine come from several individuals who actually lived them the reason i remember them is because they happen to be part of my own life nachello louisa's first companion and my father is the first fact that doesn't fit your picture and his whole life undermines what you learn from manuel I was only two years old when he was killed, but I learned about him ever since then, not only from Louisa, whose veracity you discount, but also from Alberts, who never had any illusions or dreams. Nachalo was a peasant, like the Sedlaks, but when he met Louisa, he had already divorced himself from all the village traditions, taboos, and ceremonies. He was considerably older than Louisa. When they met, he had already experienced a revolutionary peasant uprising, which he had been defeated by status parading as revolutionaries. He had seen his village destroyed, his friends and his wife killed by a gang of murderers who called themselves a workers army he fled with a newborn baby together with a handful of his comrades he later learned that none of the insurgent peasants who stayed behind became jailers or executioners because every single one of them was killed in exile he worked at odd jobs and drank his daughter whom he named margarita grew up as a street urchin ragged hungry and illiterate on one of his jobs he met louisa a girl who was only three or four years older than Margarita. Luisa, in her own words, seduced him. She was fascinated, even hypnotized by nacholo not only by the man, but also by his experiences. Her mother had died when she was a girl. Her father had been shot by the police in a strike. Before she met nacholo she had been actively involved in union activities. nacholo brought her a totally new perspective, new hopes and possibilities. Here was a man who hadn't only fought losing defensive battles against the oppressors, but who had actually gone on the offensive, routed the exploiters, and held the ground for a period of years. She couldn't hear enough from him. She followed him after work, to the bars, and then to his miserable room. She took Nacholo and Margarita to union meetings and introduced them to militant comrades. It was at one of these meetings that the three of them met George Alberts. After I was born, Nacholo, Luisa, and Margarita moved to a larger and cleaner apartment. It was so large that their comrades used it to hold meetings alberts was the most regular visitor he and margarita became inseparable when the army attacked the city Nacholo was among the first workers in the neighborhood to run out armed to begin building barricades louisa ran after him margarita joined them although she was pregnant and she refused to return home until a bullet grazed her arm she died while giving birth to sabina Nachalo died two or three months later, while fighting against the combined forces of the army, the landowners, and the church. I'm not asking you for tears or even sympathy. All this happened very long ago, and I've already shed all the tears I'll ever shed over it. All I'm asking is why you sent me such a letter. How could you tell me that a certain Manuel, said Nachalo, Luisa, and Margarita, and all their dead and wounded comrades fought only to reimpose the landlords, the state, and the church? What have I become to you? Why? you proceed to revise my equally illusory picture of the resistance. It so happens that I was there as well, and I was considerably older. I even remember some events on my own, not just from the stories told to me by others. What you tell me is that the workers of the city, some of whom I knew personally, fought to liberate themselves from a military dictatorship only to make room for another. I found your account of your own activity during the war fascinating. You had never spoken about that. But your new insight, your exposure of the true nature of the event, is neither insightful nor true. Do you really expect me to purge my memory of what you call Louisa's fantasy in order to replace it with yours? It seems to me that I'd be even worse off than the workers in your fabricated resistance fighting in an already liberated city to make room for a military dictatorship. You describe my activity with you as a puppet show. Your description corresponds neither to the events I experienced at the time, nor to events I experienced later. I'm not misreading your letter. I think I understand perfectly well what you're saying. We thought we were acting freely while, in fact, we were being manipulated. Therefore, we were puppets. Since we are not, in fact, puppets but people, we must have turned ourselves into puppets. Therefore, we manipulated ourselves. Your conclusions don't follow from your premises. I'll show you. I won't refer to my experience with you to illustrate my argument, since that experience has become so foul to you. I'll refer to a similar experience which had nothing to do with your imprisonment. Two years ago, I got a job teaching a university class. The first thing I noticed was that students, especially the men, were not the same people I had gone to school with. My contemporaries had been short-haired automatons who applauded in movie houses whenever a bomb destroyed a village. The new students were almost a different species. Instead of considering the university a training ground which would magnify their power to kill, many thought of school as a way of avoiding or postponing going to war. They no longer applauded mass killings. Most of them didn't want to become professional murderers, and none of them wanted to die for the flag. Ways to avoid killing and dying constituted the main topic of their conversations. Some months after the beginning of the school year, I was visited by two young people who weren't students. They called themselves revolutionary organizers. They introduced themselves to students who published the radical newspaper, to outspoken students, and to what they called radical faculty members like me. They announced a meeting in the school's largest auditorium. They had made previous arrangements with students who were to be the local hosts of the event, and I agreed to be the faculty sponsor. These two organizers were no longer subject to the military draft. They saw the draft as a lever, an issue around which to organize a following. They saw the protesting students as a potential base for their organization. In other words, they were professional politicians. Over 200 students came to the meeting. It was the largest political gathering that had taken place at the university for several decades. Students came with the hope of communicating with their likes, as you put it. They came to learn what others had learned, to help and be helped. All of their hopes were thwarted. They were subjected to several hours of political harangues that were far less inspired than most of their daily lectures. The organizers had picked the speakers, among whom they included themselves. They had defined the topics of the harangues. They had even planted people in the audience to ask questions at the end. Most of the 200 people who had originally come to the meeting left before it was over. At the end there were only eight left besides the organizers i stayed in the back of the auditorium to the end those eight students elected themselves to be the local chapter of the organization i later learned that seven of them had already elected themselves to this office earlier for the remainder of the year these eight students became representatives and spokesmen not only of the 200 students who had come to the meeting but of all the students in the university in terms of your analysis the students who originally came to the meeting shackled themselves as well as all other students with these political bureaucrats. They were manipulated into legitimating the power of these politicians. But that's absurd. They all left as soon as they realized the speeches came from tin cans. Only one out of 200 was taken in by the political marmalade dished out by these political bosses who differed from professors and factory managers only in age. Of course, you'll say that by the time they realized the program was canned, it was too late their mere presence at the meeting had already validated the politician's claim to be the spokesmen of the mass of students after that single act they could no longer meet publicly with each other without having the politicians preside over them which was in fact what happened therefore merely by attending the meeting they had muzzled themselves bowed themselves to new bosses who were more insidious than the old bosses because they came from among themselves therefore the students had been puppets inert things objects moved by forces outside themselves dolls manipulated by puppeteers Your analysis reduces a two-dimensional picture to a single dimension. It reduces two sides to one. The protesting students were on one side, the politicians and all of their officials were on the other. The fact that the university officials accepted the student politicians as the spokesmen of protesting students doesn't mean that any of the protesting students accepted them as their spokesmen. It merely means that officials recognized and embraced other officials and momentarily disregarded their club's age requirements. By omitting the second side, you lose sight of the relation between the two sides. You leave out what we used to call the struggle between the ruling class and the repressed class, the class struggle. The fact that the rulers recruit their agents from among the repressed doesn't mean that the repressed are the agents of their own repression. You don't only admit the fact of struggle. In one part of your letter, you even make fun of Luisa's description of the external forces that suppress revolutionary workers and peasants who had not become puppets. According to you, there was no external forces. The rot is always within. Whatever happens to me is my own fault. Your profound new insight is no more than the ancient doctrine of original sin. You misunderstand Cassius's observation. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. In your version, the bullets, dear Sophia, are not in their guns, but in our brains. That makes us underlings. Those who arrested you and me were not imaginary beings, nor was I arrested by myself. My memory did, in fact, freeze certain facts, and they've been perfectly preserved. One of these facts is that I was arrested by police agents. Another fact is that I was taken to a police station in a jail which I had not helped build. Both were much older than I was. A third fact is that the statements on my posters and the words on my lips were not secret instructions to the police for your arrest. The police received their instructions from their superiors, ultimately from the politicians in the state apparatus and not from the likes of you or me. If you think I was a puppet displaying the warrant for my own arrest, you're hallucinating, not Louisa or I. It was absurd of me to tell Tina we were arrested because we were Albert's relatives, since eight or nine of us were arrested and only two of us were related to Albert's. Furthermore, Albert's wasn't arrested. I suppose it's this ridiculous slip of my memory that confirms your statements about my inability to remember my own real past. This slip embarrasses me. It makes me wish I had a more trustworthy memory, but it doesn't convince me that I've systematically falsified my past. It doesn't convince me that my modest exterior houses an ogre, who, after exterminating her victims, makes them vanish to oblivion. I do remember that Albers had nothing to do with our arrest, but I don't remember that I helped paint signs and tapestries which were hung in front of prison walls. I don't remember that I helped bury a human community and drown the sound of human voices. My own life has been surrounded by those very signs and tapestries, by those very walls, by that very silence and lack of community. All my life I've longed for nothing more than to communicate with my likes on a field without signs or walls. How could I prove this to you? You reached out to me and I responded. I would have tried to reach you the day after my release from jail and every day after that if I had thought my letters would be delivered but you know perfectly well that letters were being returned without any explanations. I had my first real chance to reach you only 12 years ago. A friend of mine, Lem Issel, was going to be near you on his way to some international conference. I frantically wrote letters to all of you. I was terribly sad when nothing came in response to those letters. I didn't see Lem again until several years later. He told me he had been arrested because he'd been carrying my letters. He proceeded to list the horrors he had undergone in prisons and camps, and concluded by telling me about his recent conversion to an ancient Egyptian religion. I hardly listened to what he told me, and I didn't believe any of it. I concluded he had lost my letters, and had made up the stories about the imprisonment and the tortures. I thought he was covering up his guilt by pretending I was guilty of his imprisonment. Now you tell me that one of my letters did reach its destination, though you never saw it. Lem didn't lose the letters after all this means that the rest of his story may also have been true i might have caused lem's arrest and according to myrna i also caused yours this makes me a dangerous schizophrenic mild and well intentioned during the day while at night i plot the arrest imprisonment and torture of my friends i can't stand seeing myself where your letter leaves me can't you see there's something ridiculous about these insinuations and accusations When I wrote you twelve years ago, and when I wrote you last time in answer to your warm and comradely first letter, I was desperately reaching for understanding, sympathy, human communication. Your last letter reduces both my gestures to terrible crimes. You, Lem, and Myrna suggest that I've done nothing in my life except send instructions to the police. Though I don't feel like laughing, I'm convinced something funny is going on. I'm no more schizophrenic than the rest of my contemporaries, and my paranoia is generally lower than the average. I can't make myself believe that my letter had anything to do with Lem's arrest or with yours. I have no idea what Lem was doing there besides delivering my letters, but I do know that my letters didn't contain instructions to the police. They were private, personal letters. They referred solely to my own insignificant experiences and didn't contain a single reference to politics or politicians. I didn't know what the president's name was or even if there was a president. Do the police arrest, imprison, and torture people for carrying such letters? Does that police really have nothing else to do? Are they madmen? Doesn't this sound awfully silly and terribly paranoid? I had known Len for many years, and I knew that paranoia wasn't out of the question as far as he was concerned. Paranoia was the root of his conceit. It confirmed his importance and his political effectiveness. He always saw himself as persecuted. When he called himself a revolutionary, he convinced himself his phone was tapped. He was forever being followed and watched. All the attention he got proved how revolutionary he was. When later he became a mystic, he convinced himself that objects persecuted him could i believe such a person when he told me my letters caused his arrest i don't know what to say about myrna's suspicions does she too have traces of paranoia you certainly suggest as much when you tell me you don't consider my letter the cause of your arrest i obviously can't prove anything since i don't have access to the police files all i can say is that the accusation sounds silly i'm going to admit something else because suddenly i no longer care what you make of this admission I haven't told you all my reasons for thinking that lem was lying to me when he told me about his arrest and imprisonment. It wasn't only because I was familiar with lem's persecution mania that I didn't believe him. The story itself sounded phony to me. I didn't pay any attention to him. The sequence of horrors didn't only seem terribly exaggerated, but was also similar, down to details, to the pictures drawn by official propagandists. I was sure he had read the whole story in a newspaper. And at the time, I was convinced that those stories were pure fabrications, fictional from the first word to the last. No, I wasn't taken in by the opposite propaganda. I knew about the prisons and camps, the political purges, the state-run unions, the speed-ups, and the productivity campaigns. What I didn't believe were the stock stories about the priests, nuns, and itty-bitty children tortured in medieval dungeons. since these stories were obviously journalistic fictions pulled out of dusty war hysteria files, with names and dates changed for every occasion. I recognized these newspaper articles in Lem's account. I didn't recognize a single element of a world which should have been familiar to me, because, as you so crudely put it, I'd helped build it. He was, after all, talking about a place where I had once known several workers who were not unlike thousands of other workers. He was telling me that all the people I had lived with and worked with and all others like them had simply vanished into the thin air and had been replaced by chains, gates, and horrifying instruments of torture. He was telling me that all those workers had either allowed those horrors to take place, or else that they had been imprisoned and executed, and that the only people left were apes or sheep. I couldn't believe any of that. I couldn't believe all those people had vanished. All the dreams I had fought for had disappeared without leaving a trace. I couldn't accept a vision similar to the one you expressed in your letter. I couldn't believe the last human beings were dying in prisons, while self-oppressed beings had replaced them outside. I nursed my illusion. I deluded myself put it any way you want. If I had believed Lamb, I would either have gone straight to a mental hospital, or I would have killed myself. I believe there were people like me over there, that they had retained their dreams and hopes, that they were still struggling. I tried to reach them. Does that make me a criminal? Is it a criminal to have hopes and dreams which reality might invalidate? Are a prisoner's dreams about his projects after release illusions because he might die in prison? Since we all know we'll eventually die, since any of us might die tomorrow— Are all our hopes and dreams illusions? Are we criminals when we fail to realize them? You contradict your main argument. You tell me that, in spite of the uncertainty of your release, you made plans in prison. In every other paragraph, you speak of projects, dreams, and hopes. You write poetry about the unshackled imagination, about the possibility of creating our world in the light of our dreams. You're insincere. I think you were equally insincere when you told Myrna and her parents that you were opposed to marrying her. Your arguments against marriage seemed as hollow as your arguments about my illusions. At no point in your narrative did I feel you had the slightest doubt that you'd marry Myrna. When you told me how certain they all were that the event would take place, I felt like you were every bit as certain from beginning to end. And when you tell me about my illusions, I'm convinced that you share every last one of them. If you didn't share those illusions, you wouldn't be able to describe the ferment surrounding you today. You wouldn't even be able to see it. If those in today didn't share what you call my illusions, There would be no ferment around you today. People without such hopes and dreams are not human beings, and only human beings can give rise to a ferment of the type you describe. You're insincere, and you're applying a double standard. When I express the hope that will tear down the walls that imprison us, that hope is an illusion. When you express the same hope, it becomes an intention, a project, a motive for communication, comradeship, and struggle. I remember my past only in order to hallucinate, whereas you remember your past in order to understand your present. Believe it or not, I use my past exactly the same way you use yours. I don't use it as a subject for admiration, distortion, or hallucination, but as a perspective from which to view my present, exactly as you do. If I hadn't once in my life been with people who had momentarily stopped being wage workers, I would have been perfectly satisfied to remain a wage worker the first time I got a job. Just as you would be still driving that infernal bus delivering human excrement to the city's sewers. I quit my first job, as well as my second, because I had known human beings who had been more, much more, than wage workers. If I hadn't once had a genuine learning experience, I would have accepted my years in high school and college as a learning experience. I couldn't have imagined education in any other form. My past experience helped me see through, expose, and rebel against my present experience. It helped me see through the systematic stunting and incapacitation which passes as education. If I hadn't once experienced friendship, solidarity, and communication, I would never have been able to guess what was wrong with all the Mr. Ninovos who populate the world, and nothing in my life would have kept me from becoming one of them. The people you and I once knew, the hopes we shared with them, the projects we undertook together, have served me as as a standard of comparison. Perhaps imaginary people and projects would have served as well. Isn't that the sensible meaning of utopia, a standard against which to measure the present? My utopia was slightly more vivid than most people's because I had actually experienced moments of it. This is why all your accusations miss their mark. I'm not, after all, competing in a memory contest, nor writing a history, nor am I engaged in scholarly research into my past. If I were, you would have devastated my project as inept, inaccurate, and totally untrustworthy. Since I'm only trying to determine who I am and what I'm doing, you fail to make a point and you punch holes in an imaginary balloon. Far from trying to reconstruct the actual sequence of past events, I'm only using my own and to some extent Louisa's and Nachello's past as a standard of comparison and guide for present decisions and actions. You've been my lifelong guide just as Louisa was yours, and you're wrong to uproot her from your memory, to discard her. You're only impoverishing yourself. By eliminating this standard, you're left with nothing but the world as it is. If you deprive yourself of the ability to see what people can be and what life can be, you'll only be able to see what they are, and you'll conclude that that's all they can be. Yet even while you uproot Louisa from your memory, you reject the world into which you've been released. Even while you're discarding your standard of comparison, you're comparing and measuring. By what standard can you define a person? as a stunted human being, if all conceptions of fully developed human beings are illusions. How on earth can you even know you're in prison if you can't imagine there are human beings out of prison? If I froze the memory of my experience with you, I didn't do this to glorify the outcome of that experience, since it had no outcome, but to transport that experience into a new terrain. If I preserved the hopes and dreams I shared with you, it wasn't because I thought you and I had realized them, but because I wanted to go on struggling to realize them. I brought those hopes and dreams to a world that lacked them, a world that uprooted and killed such hopes and dreams. If those dreams now seem stunted to you, it's because this world to which I was brought didn't contain the soil in which they could grow. Accuse me of having dragged those dreams into an environment in favor to them. Accuse me of having failed to realize them, but don't in the same breath, accuse me of having suppressed them. I'm sorry you didn't read my last letter in the spirit in which I wrote it. I'm sorry because our lives were not so different after we were arrested and separated. I understood perfectly the desperation you felt right after your release from prison. I understood why you considered those few days bleaker than all your years in prison. I understood because when I wrote you 12 years ago, I considered the eight years after my release bleaker than imprisonment. I apologize for the way this sounds. When I sent that letter, I had no idea you had spent four years in prison. Louisa and I were were released after two days in jail, and for some reason I thought you had been released shortly after us. Yet even if I had known you'd spent half those years in jail, I would have preferred to spend those eight years as you spent them. I would at least have been in prison for acts I'd known I'd committed. And on release, I would have once again have been in a world that was familiar to me with people who were friends. Please don't misunderstand me again. I'm not glorifying the bureaucracy and the police who install themselves as rulers. I don't know much about them, but everything I do know sends shivers down my back. That's not at all what I'm writing about. I'm trying to tell you that all my life here, I've wished I had never left you. That my emigration was nothing but a big mistake. That here I wasn't able to become more than I already was when you knew me. I hope this time I'm making myself clear. You told me the world you found after your release wasn't paradise. I never thought it was. I'm trying to tell you something similar about myself. The world I came to wasn't paradise either. It wasn't even as close to paradise as my experience with you. The world to which I was brought was publicly considered humanity's first earthly paradise, the most perfect community of happy human beings. It took me only a few minutes to learn that the happy human beings were images on signs and tapestries identical to those you described, that the milk and honey were spilled willy-nilly on a desert that contained neither community, nor comradeship, nor human warmth. I had been brought to this utopia of objects for no reason at all. I was in prison here. Not because of acts I had committed, but because someone thought he was doing me a favor by bringing me here. And in this desert paradise there's no hope of release. This is the apex of everything that can be desired, though not by human beings. All roads leading from the apex are steep descents. From here I can only go down. For here I can only be released into the prisons in which you've spent half your life. I wish I knew what you heard me saying. How frustrating it is to communicate across such a great distance surely you don't again hear me saying that your imprisonment was the realization of my dreams if i refer to my experiences with you while describing the world i was brought to it's because those were the only experiences i had had before coming here they were the vantage point from which i saw where i was you describe vesna as being born into a cage from which she never emerged i suppose you mean she had never known life outside the cage since her earliest memories were memories of the cage She had no other memories, not even frozen ones, to compare and contrast with her experiences in the cage. Consequently, she couldn't know that she was in a cage. I do have memories, and it's thanks to them that I'm able to describe this paradise as a cage. And so do you. If you didn't, how would you know Vesna was born in a cage? If you didn't remember a moment of life outside the cage, no matter how brief, you, like Vesna, would think of the cage as the world, the only possible world, perhaps even the best of all possible worlds. I remember my release from jail and my journey here as a terrible trip through a very long tunnel. My life was at the opening I was moving away from, and I expected to find nothing at the other end. Released after two days in jail, I thought Louisa and I would return to our friends. I thought we would continue the work we hadn't finished. I thought the struggle had only begun. I expected to find you and all our other friends engaged in the activities from which I had suddenly been cut off. We're leaving, Louisa said. Leaving what? Our friends? Our project? But our project wasn't yet off the ground. The new world wasn't yet built. Was everyone leaving? Were we going to continue our struggle elsewhere? Was our world already built somewhere else? If not, why were we leaving and where were we going? I didn't understand. I was frustrated and shocked. I froze every detail of that project and those friends as well as every hope I had shared with them. I fixed my experience in my memory as if I already knew then that I was being taken to a cage from which I would never emerge. If I hadn't frozen those memories, if I had forgotten my experiences and my friends, then like Vesna, I would have only known the cage. I would have grown up like those around me who don't know any life outside. I would have accepted my cage companions as the only possible human beings, and my cage experiences as the only possible human experiences. I couldn't have compared my life in the cage to the life I had had before I was caged. If I'd forgotten you, I couldn't have written you 12 years ago, and I had no reason in the world to write you now. I wouldn't have responded to your first letter because I would have thought you alien and bizarre. I would have been a bird of paradise who couldn't possibly have understood a letter from a foreigner, and even if I'd read it, I wouldn't have sent a word of mine to an insurgent who was a jailbird to boot. Louisa later told me I was sick during the entire journey, that I broke down. I was extremely hostile to Alberts and ungrateful. I didn't show the slight appreciation for the favor he was doing us. I was as rude to him as I had been to my jailer. Louisa acted grateful. I remember that. This was partly what made me sick. As things turned out later, she had been wrong. Her gratitude only lasted a few months. I clung to Louisa, but for the first time in my life, I didn't trust her. I suspected she didn't know where we were going, why we were going, or what we would do when we got there. And I was right. Sabina was the only one of us who knew exactly where she was going and what she would do there. Alberts had told her she was going to the land of gigantic objects and monstrous toys. He was right. She bubbled over with enthusiasm and couldn't wait to get there. She jumped around like a monkey released from its cage. I hated her for that enthusiasm. I did everything I could to block out the noise she made. I saw her as a chicken running around a yard cackling during the few minutes before her head is chopped off. Sabina's wishes were fulfilled. This El Dorado was everything Albert's had promised. The original El Dorado, where streets had been paved with nuggets of gold, and where people had walked on the gold and respected each other, had disappeared long ago. Its inhabitants had all been exterminated. In its place had grown up another El Dorado, where gold is stored in underground vaults, and the streets are paved with flesh, where objects walk on people and respect each other. It is indeed the land of gigantic toys. The toys have defeated the people objects rule city streets country highways bridges and underpasses objects are housed fed and nursed objects are displayed praised honored and worshiped the people are small and fearful they're mere attendants to the needs of the objects when they're not nursing objects the people are nothing more than obstacles on the paths of rushing objects every collision between a person and objects destroys the person while leaving the object intact only the objects have purposes and directions When people aren't tending objects, they drift. They don't rest. On the contrary, they're always on the alert. They keep their eyes on the objects so to avoid colliding with them. They don't even dream about communicating with each other. They don't have the time. They know that in the time it took to establish contact with one of their likes, they'd be crushed. They eavesdrop on conversation among objects. Without communication, they can't launch common projects, and they no longer even imagine them where did i find the language and imagery with which to understand and describe this world you know exactly where in the carton plant twenty years ago when i was among fearless unintimidated human beings communicating with each other engaged in a common project among individuals who walked on objects and respected each other that was my utopia my eldorado haven't you been carrying a similar picture for at least as many years what are those barricades which existed so briefly, and then only in situations of crisis, but which nevertheless revealed a permanent human possibility? That's what my picture shows me, a permanent human possibility. By showing me what people can be, it helps me understand what those around me have become. By showing me people engaged in common projects, it informs me that drift is not the only possible content of human life. No, I haven't been a hermit for the past 20 years. I haven't remained totally isolated from the people around me. I haven't sat in my room contemplating the picture of my one-time friends. My breakdown didn't last from then until now. I met innumerable people. I worked with many of them. I'm trying to describe how I experienced them. I'm trying to tell you who they were and what they were by contrasting them with what they weren't. I'm trying to describe a cage as the cage I experienced it to be and not as the paradise Its other inmates imagine it to be. I can only do this from a vantage point outside the cage, from the vantage point of the experience I shared with you, from the vantage point of the picture that I kept for all those years. By tearing my picture to shreds as you tore your picture of Louisa, you tear my life as well. The possibilities I reached for in every encounter and every event were the only live elements of my experiences. Please don't rob me of the people who informed me of those possibilities. They're among the few people I knew who weren't puppets. They're the only human community i ever experienced. They weren't perfect. They weren't gods. They were flawed and human, identical to millions of others. That's why they revealed a human possibility. Yet you make their very humanity appear inhuman. It's you who are looking for gods. I'm only looking for more Veras, more Adrians, Marks, Clods. I remember a Vera who talked, but not like a radio. The radio is an instrument which kills communication. It robs people of their tongues. It broadcasts the voice of a single individual to millions of listeners, reducing them to passive receptacles. If communication has the same root as common and community, the radio is an instrument for uprooting all three. The Vera I remember had the unmagnified voice of a single individual among thousands of other individuals. She was one of the thousands who were turning off the radios and regaining their own voices. To me, she's the very opposite of the countless politicians I've met since. Who dreamed only of the day when their voices would be the only sound in a sea of silent listeners? I remember an Adrian who moved with the tide. When the people around him began to throw off the muck of ages, he was infected by their spirit and did his best to liberate himself. If the spirit of liberation could spread to Adrian, it could spread to all. He was living proof of what was possible. I have met many conformists since, but none of them were ever infected by a spirit of liberation or by any spirit at all. They all moved within the rigid confines of official routine. I remember a Claude who was an oaf, but I also remember that at least for an instant he was using his bulk to defend himself and his comrades. You express intense dislike for him. To me he was a symbol of the working class, waking up from the stupor of wage labor, at last turning its bulk against capital. The bullies I've known since have used their weight to defend their masters and oppress their peers. You describe Mark as a self-styled expert. I thought he was a worker like the others. I remember him as a dreamer. He let his imagination wander freely over the field of possibilities. The expression is yours. He gave me a glimpse of what the world might be like if everyone's imagination wandered so freely. I've met many people who thought themselves experts, but I never wished for a world which contained more of them. According to you, these people whose emotions and projects were their own existed only in my private imagination. You have good words only for Yasna, Jan, and Titus, precisely the three whom I didn't consider models or guides. I was never able to consider Titus a comrade because after Nachello's death, both he and Alberts acted as fathers towards me. But have it your way. Say the workers I remember are imaginary. Say the experience I shared with them never took place. It doesn't really matter. Even if I never lived such an experience, I can still say that my imagination once glimpsed the possibility of genuine social activity, which was neither trivial nor marginal. Even if I never knew those people... I imagine insurgents who struggled to shake off their chains and not to shackle others with them. Imaginary or not, that experience and those people informed all my senses from the first moment after my release. It's because of them and because of you that I experienced my release from jail and my immigration as a descent into hell. Instead of being overjoyed, I was morose. Instead of being grateful to Alberts, I thought he had cut me off from the living. I didn't accept events the way Myrna's mother accepted them, as the unwinding of fate. My real or imagined experience had made me a critic. Albert's already had a job when we came here. This had been arranged by people he had worked with during the war. I never knew them, nor what he had done with them. He taught natural science in high school, although your imagery describes his activity much more accurately. He paced in front of 30 or 40 teenagers from 9 to 3 while excrement dripped on him. I know, because a year after we came, I watched him drip for a whole semester. Thanks to you, I know what a teacher is. When we arrived, we were greeted, I should say fawned over, by a self-appointed reception committee. They told us that freedom was the nickname of their flag, that the mortal danger of crossing the street was proof of a high standard of living, and that we would be happy when we learned to live like them. They were jingoes, war hawks. They found us a place. They called it a home, the local euphemism for the walls that separate people from their neighbors. They told us they would gladly help us solve any problems we might have but they left us neither names nor phone numbers, and we never saw any of them again. I had my own room in our home. I had never had one before. It wasn't damp or cold, and it had no roaches, mice, or rats. There was a bed, and there were walls. It wasn't like a prison cell, because I could leave whenever I pleased. For several days I sat on the bed and stared at the walls, and then it was just like a prison cell. It separated me from my friends and from my activities. My life was elsewhere, outside far away. I was a prisoner. Louisa brought me my meals. At times she was the old Louisa. She understood. She sympathized. She regretted the journey and hated the home, the reception committee and Alberts. But other times she was a new Louisa. The Louisa who had been grateful to Alberts and polite to the reception committee, who called me a stubborn goose and insisted I'd find new friends and forget my old ones. Neighbors came to visit. I wanted to go out and stare at them, but I stayed in my room and listened. They said they wanted to introduce themselves, but in fact they had come to Snoop. They asked Louisa how old her daughters were. They must have counted us when we moved in. I hadn't once left my room since that day. They asked Louisa why we weren't in school. Louisa told them we were learning the language. That wasn't true. Sabina was already fluent, thanks to Albert's, and I couldn't understand most of what was said. Louisa also told them the trip had been a shock to both of us and we were recovering. This wasn't true of Sabina, and the neighbors must have known Louisa was lying. Sabina had already run all around the neighborhood, and no one could have thought her sick. Sabina simply refused to go to school. She argued that neither she nor Louisa nor I had come here to go to school, only Alberts had. A few days after our neighbor's thoughtful visit, two officials came. They, too, asked Louisa why her daughters weren't in school. You're not the only one who has Mr. Ninovo for a neighbor louisa was intimidated she promised to pack both of us off to school the following morning you aim your critique at the louisa who fought bravely in a revolution you don't even seem aware of the second louisa the one who ran away from her friends and projects twice the one who was afraid and intimidated you're disillusioned with the wrong louisa louisa begged me to go to school and i was disillusioned but i felt sorry for her and gave in since i had never intended to spend the rest of my life in that room sabina was more principled than i and Alberts was less slavish than Louisa. He telephoned someone he knew and had Sabina enrolled in a private school which she never attended. Sabina was simply told to stay out of the neighbor's sight during school hours, which she managed to do quite successfully until she and Alberts moved out several months later. She didn't spend a single day in school. How sickeningly adaptable people are. During my first few days in school, I was revolted, shocked, and indignant. Lively young people sat like trained poodles and let ignorant functionaries stuff their heads with garbage. I tried to think of ways to expose and undermine the poodle training sessions, but all I ever thought of doing was to refuse to answer questions on the grounds that they were biased or trivial. Instead of taking notes about the lectures, I took notes about the teachers and the students. I intended to use those notes when I wrote letters to my former comrades. I was going to describe to you what happened to human beings if they lost the struggle we had fought. I still have those notes. I re-read some of them before I started this letter. I wanted to see what extent my memory contained only experiences I had invented. I found myself innocent of your charge. I never wrote the letters those notes were intended for, yet I continued to take notes. Later I rearranged them. I was going to write a novel, comparing my past with my present. Gradually my shock, my indignation, my desire to expose the farce called education were confined to my notes. My life was confined to my notebook. I dragged myself to school mechanically, absently, as if I were taking a garbage bag to a dump. I adapted. I became like the others. Only my notebook continued to rebel, and I never showed these notes to anyone. They were intended for you. Yet now that I'm finally showing them to you, I'm embarrassed. Your letter makes me defensive about them. I'd always been sure you'd understand. Your letter makes me suspect I did have one illusion after all, the illusion that you'd understand. In any case, your letter wasn't a letter from a complete stranger. I recognize you every time you stop talking about me. The passages where you described yourself and the people around you were the passages in which I recognized my own experience, and it's because of them that I think you'll understand mine. I understood your anger and frustration when you leafed through Myrna's history book. My history book was similar to Myrna's. It contained the same accounts of the rise of bureaucrats to government offices. Though I had lived in an environment where every single human attribute and every facet of nature had been transformed into wage labor and capital, the textbook history of that environment didn't mention wage labor or capital. Though I lived in a city where the systematic despoliation and oppression of human beings had reached a level unknown to any previous human beings, the textbook history spoke only of equality and freedom. The students didn't seem to pay a whole lot of attention, but the lies nevertheless got through to them by osmosis. One of the first students who had talked to me was another foreigner. He told me his father had worked in a steel plant for two years. He had lifted a load that was too heavy for him and it injured his back. When he failed to recover and return to work, he was fired. The boy's mother had gone to work to support him and a sick father. The boy asked me, The place where you come from is a part of the free world too? The language teacher spent six months reading a single novel to the class. Can you imagine that? Since I had already read the book, I spent my time elaborating my notes. There was even a class in cooking, which I simply refused to attend. As soon as I refused, I was told I was free to take a class in woodturning and carpentry. I was the only girl there. Apparently, no other girl refused to take the cooking class, and consequently, no other girl had learned she was free not to take it. You described how out-of-place Mirna's school books seemed to be in her house. Books seemed, at least, as misplaced in the hands of some of my teachers, particularly my mathematics teacher. In addition to being the math teacher, this man was the school's sports expert. He was one of the few teachers in the school who possessed the highest academic degree. He was called the doctor, and it was said he had framed his diploma and hung it in his living room. It was also said that the thesis for which he had been granted his degree dealt with basketball dribbling. I think both stories were true. He may, in fact, have been very good at writing about dribbling a basketball, but he couldn't divide fractions, and I suspected he had never learned to solve simple algebraic equations. He would solve on the blackboard precisely those problems that were solved in the book. One day he made a mistake copying. In order to go to the next step, he had to divide the same quantity out of both sides of the equation. He divided each side by a different quantity and nonchalantly continued copying. I was furious. Hey, you can't do that, I shouted. You wouldn't have to do it if you had copied the right numbers out of the book. He turned to me red as a beet. You bullshies are too smart for your own good, he shouted. The athlete then walked right up to me and slapped me. I screamed, and he became rigid as a board. Some students cheered him and shouted, You show her, coach. Those students cheered him because they considered him the rebel. I was in a world where everything unfamiliar to me stood on its head. The roles were inverted. The bullying teacher was seen as a rebel, and the rebellious student as a representative of authority. The police were experienced as agents of freedom, and insurgents as agents of oppression. Authoritarian conformists consider themselves individualists, and revolutionaries were called bullshies and commissars. The greatest inversion of all was the most authoritarian of the authoritarians. Those who glorified the state and dreamed of becoming omnipotent police chiefs thought of themselves as revolutionaries. My friend Lem Isel, the one who later carried my letters to you, was one of these. I met Lem the day the dribbling expert slapped me. "'Lem ran after me when the school was over "'in a suit and tie, wearing glasses, "'carrying his leather bag. "'I think you were right,' he told me. "'What do you mean you think I was right? "'I know I was,' I shouted. "'Look into your book!' "'Yes, I know,' he said. "'I had the book open, too. "'What I wanted to ask you was about that name he called you. "'You mean Bolshe? "'That's not my name.' "'I know it's not your name. "'What I mean is, is it true? "'Are you? "'Do you believe in tendencies and things?' He asked this last question in the same tone in which someone might have asked, Do you believe the sun is going to fall into the lake the day after tomorrow and the world is going to end? Or Do you believe every statue of Jesus bleeds every night? And I knew he was dying to relieve himself by telling me, So do I. Tendencies and things. What on earth do you mean? I asked. Oh, you can tell me. I'm a comrade. I'm no stool pigeon. He whispered all this. I shouted, What are you talking about? What do you want? Shh, you know what I mean tendencies forces the dialectic yes unfortunately i knew what he meant but it was nothing very exciting it wasn't even altogether alive but it was something it was the form rebellion took in this environment and i was extremely lonely i'm reminded of the people you described who ate bark lem was a disgusting clown a tidy bureaucrat who might some day transmit the order to exterminate thousands of workers a stuffy state agent who was old long before his time but I hadn't a conversation with anyone except Louisa since we'd come here, and after I'd started going to school, I had avoided Louisa. I couldn't keep myself from reaching out to Lem. Tendencies, I said, hesitating, as if I was remembering something. Why, yes, of course. Tendencies, I forgot to add. And things. I knew you were one of us as soon as the coach called you a bullshe. And I knew what Lem was going to say long before he said it. And did I confirm what you already knew? You sure did. We can keep it a secret from them, from but not from each other. He was obviously a novice in the conspiratorial profession and had as yet learned nothing about security. Does no one else know you're one of them? I mean, one of us, I asked. I've kept it a secret from everyone, even from my parents, he proudly boasted. My, imagine that. I didn't even try to hide my admiration for his ability to keep secrets. Not even your parents? You must be very courageous. I thought it would be hard, but it isn't really, he explained. "'My study group meets every Friday night, and I tell my parents I go to movies. "'I used to go to movies a lot on Friday nights. "'I always make sure I know what's on at one of the theaters, "'although they haven't yet asked yet what I've seen. "'And the study group, I ventured? "'It must be even better than our classes in school.' "'Oh, yes, it's much more disciplined,' he said predictably. "'Anyone who did what you did today would be expelled right away. "'How marvelous! "'Are you making fun of me? "'Oh, no!' Of course none of the lecturers in the study group would ever be caught making such a dumb mistake. Can you tell me your name? I asked to change the subject. I had heard enough about the study group. Or is that a secret? I felt silly for adding this question, and I hope he wouldn't spoil my fun by remembering that I'd learned his name the next time the teacher revealed this secret in class. Oh no, I can tell you my name, he said eagerly and obligingly. It's Lem. Lem isel. It comes from the Greek god Isolus. My grandfather shortened it. I'm Sophia yes i know Sophia natural i saw it written on your notebook you pronounced it right my name was the only thing that he said that pleased me does it bother you when that jock pronounces it natural his pronunciation is his problem not mine it's obviously no better than his math lem said do you want me to get slapped for correcting his pronunciation as well why don't you correct him lem blushed he could at least have corrected the athlete's math since he would had the book open too "'Objective conditions,' he answered hesitantly. "'You know what I mean?' "'Oh, yes, of course. "'They weren't ripe. "'Wow, you know a lot,' he was genuinely impressed. "'I only learned about that a couple weeks ago. "'Aren't you tired of learning by the end of the week? "'And wouldn't you rather go to movies on Friday nights? "'Haven't you ever been to study groups?' he asked. "'I didn't answer. "'I was already tired of my game, and of Lem. "'The study group is completely different,' he explained "'as I walked away from him. "'Here everything they tell you is a lie.' there i learned about tendencies and forces you know the truth about things you and i ought to talk more you know we ought to become friends since we're already comrades my first friend was an admirer of those who had betrayed louisa arrested me imprisoned you the more i learned about him the less likable he became lem was one of the wealthier students in school his father was the manager of a department store other people of his social class were sent to private schools but lem's father wanted to give his son what he considered a taste of reality Lem's newly acquired political religion provided him with a new way of expressing his social status, and nothing more. He considered himself superior to the working class students because of his social class. He thought himself more intelligent as well, since he had been trained to memorize and obey from childhood on. And when one of the teachers introduced him to the world of tendencies and forces, he became a giant who towered above the others, being the only student in school who had been initiated into the dialectical truth about things. He was as much a member of the ruling class after his political conversion as he had been before. I let him walk me home several days a week. We frequently went to movies together, and once I invited him to a dance. Although he insisted I accompanied him to his study group, I didn't once go. I don't think we talked a great deal after our first encounter. At least I didn't record any other conversations. And because he had been friendly to me when I had been completely alone... The travesty of this rebel, this pompous leech, was to cling to me for much of the rest of my life.